0: Welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Rachel Koning Beals, an assistant managing editor and a reporter at Market Watch. I'm joined today by Hall of Fame and award-winning toy and game inventor, Jeffrey Breslow. Breslow and colleagues were the mind behind Operation, What kind of Fun, Ants in the Pants, Simon, you know all these names, Rock'em Sock'em Robots, the Evel Knievel Stunt Cycle, Gestures, and more. Welcome Jeffrey, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Jeffrey's memoir, A Game Maker's Life, The Inside Story of the Toy Industry, is out this August, and we'll put a publishing link in the chat for that book. So Jeffrey and fellow designers and engineers at independent design firm Martin Glass and Associates and Big Monster would constantly be generating ideas and the winners, and you get into this in the book, hundreds, thousands of tries for a handful of winners. That's how entertainment works. Those ideas would be purchased by Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers, Ideal, Fisher Price, Play School. So Jeffrey, what is it about games? Why do we love them?
1: Well, they're interactive between people. I think it teaches you something to win, to lose, in a controlled environment. I mean, it's so much fun to play and wipe somebody else out and you play another game. I think a good game is one where there's skill and luck involved. And if typically if the other person wins, he got lucky. If you win, it's because
0: you're better and smarter. That's funny. Well, maybe not funny, but funny. <laughs> I write, <laughs> but, as but you I'm know, I write that, for that, investors, that it, people planning for retirement, people who want meaningful Comfortable lives, but are still willing to take chances to to grow their money. Can we equate in part the desire for games, that thrill of winning, even losing, to the way we approach the stock market? Do you think?
1: Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, there's losses in in the market, and wins, and you know, it, it it's always that way. But it's much more of a loss in my business than certainly in the market business. You can't lose all the time in the market, but. The majority of the creative world is built on failure, and I would not suggest that for the market or any other type of profession. But it's allowed in the creative world.
0: I love that part of the part of the book. I mean, it's ins- it's inspiring not only for creatives, but but in a lot of ways, it's it's sort of you know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. In fact, if you're not showing all those tries, you aren't being creative, perhaps.
1: Uh, this is true. I mean, that's what it takes, and I think the hardest thing. I had to teach people that got into the business when I was running it was that failure is okay and fail again, fail again, fail again. And for some people, that's not easy to do. But for creative people in in not just in the toy design business, but in movies, theater, you know, uh, plays, all type of entertainment, it's all built on failure.
0: Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite game, Jeffrey?
1: (laughs) Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, every time I was working on one, that was the favorite game that I was working And often that didn't happen. I mean, uh, you know, I have a lot of favorites that never made it to the marketplace. But certainly uh, it has to be Ants in the Pants because that was one of the early ones, actually, the second game that I ever did. And it's still selling today, you know, and uh, that's unusual. You know, there is a life to certain things uh, in the toy and game business. But there are some that keep selling Monopoly and other ones that just go on and on. So Ants in the Pants is actually over 50 years old, which is quite
0: amazing. I had it. In fact, I had I wore my Simon uh, green today because I remember vividly getting it for Christmas at my aunt and uncle's in Milwaukee. I hadn't asked for it. The adults came through. They got the trend. They understood an electronic game in a board game world, right? They the, I, I, Still to this day, I think they gave me Simon and I didn't ask for it. And I was thrilled. It was, it was great.
1: <laughs> That's pretty funny. It was quite... In the mid-70s, when it came out, it was very early on in electronics. I mean, there was a Texas Instrument 101 chip, and it only was able to generate 32 sounds, and then it quit. I mean, today you can generate hundreds of thousands, but it was a very early chip. And they actually, in the instructions, said it would go on infinity, and somebody sent a letter into Milton Bradley saying it quit at 32. And maybe they were writing them down when they were doing the covers. I don't know. But uh, it, it was quite unusual at the time. And really the first kind of tabletop electronic game
0: uh, that was in the industry. I remember well. Wow. Just want to remind our listeners, our viewers, that um, you can submit questions for Jeffrey in the in the chat, and we'll ask them throughout the, the interview here. So um, you talk in the book, Jeffrey, about how one professor and basically a chance run-in essentially change the course of your life. Talk about why you think some of life's biggest turns, biggest decisions can hinge on one person, one conversation, one moment even.
1: Well, when I look back at it, it was a seminal moment for me. I was basically a very poor student in high school and I was flunking out of college. And, uh, and I went to visit some friends at University of Illinois. And I, my only A in high school was in art and I had a wonderful teacher and kind of a, a mentor in art. And she, it was just okay to do that kind of stuff when I was in high school. And then when I went to University of Illinois, by chance, I saw a display of industrial design in the corridor of the art building. His name was Ed Zagorski. There was a door with his name on it, half open, and I knocked and I said, can you tell me about industrial design? And literally in 20 minutes, it was so profound, he changed my life. I walked out of there and said, I need to be an industrial designer. And I went back to school, studied, uh, made the Dean's List, and then had to start over again as a freshman never got him until my sophomore year, but Ed and I were dear friends for over 60 years. He mentored me, and he just died uh, a year and a half ago at 99. Actually, he died at 99 and a quarter. He said to me, you ask a little kid, I'm t- three and a half, I'm four and three quarters. He said, when you get over 90, you can start using fractions again. Mm-hmm. So Ed died at 99 and a quarter. But he was a lifelong mentor and got me into mentoring other students at the University of Illinois. Uh, during the time he was a dear friend and mentor yeah. to
0: me. Yeah. I'm glad you I'm glad you had him had him for so long. That's that's it was been, quite a,
1: quite amazing. Yeah. Was,
0: well, know. related to that, we I write articles, we write articles, others do too, sort of debating the merits of arts education or liberal arts education versus say a specific trade. You almost hit the the exact right sweet spot industrial design between art and creative thinking, but there's math, there's marketing, there's communication. Um, any thoughts on arts and how they can be relayed into broader well, you know, I
1: mean, in, industrial design is a huge thing. I mean, Steve Jobs hired the best industrial designer in the world from England to design stuff. And he never tested anything. He, he made something that you wanted to buy. So the whole thing with design is that form follows function, okay? if you're designing a chair, it has to be comfortable and then it can be beautiful. If it's beautiful and it's not comfortable, it's a very poor chair. So it's always, that's the mantra of industrial design. Form follows function. It's got to work and then it can look beautiful. Got it. That's That's the, the, the gist of all industrial product design. You know, automobiles, everything. Yeah. Uh, it's all about working first and then looking beautiful.
0: For sure. Well, speaking of life-changing moments. Um, It was a moment of workplace gun violence that propelled your career in in ways you never would have asked for, obviously, but that happened nonetheless. And let's just mention, how can we not? Right near where we both live, Jeffrey, individuals lost dozens hurt yesterday during a shooting at a July 4th parade in Highland Park outside Chicago. Gun violence can and does have a far reach, as you know all too well. So talk as much as you are willing, you do so in the book about that summer work day in 1976, Uh, a coworker, as I understand it, with an undiagnosed mental illness, but one who also made it a bit of a habit to bring guns, presumably his hobby at the time to kind of show off in the engineering shop, which left the workplace with mixed feelings. Anyway, there was a summer day in, in 76 that, that changed your life forever. Do you, do you mind telling us a little bit about it? No, not,
1: not at all. I mean, in, in going back to Highland Park, I raised my kids in Highland Park. Uh, I lived there 25 years, and I have many friends still there. And, and fortunately, uh, none were at the parade yesterday, but it's difficult to talk. It's more difficult to talk about Highland Park at the moment than it is about something that happened that long ago. But this was a, a man who worked for us for seven years. Uh, he was our only electrical engineer. You know, he'd just come back from delivering a job. So there was nothing that indicated that this was going to happen. I mean, absolutely nothing. And my partner knew him for seven years before that and brought him in. Uh, did I know he brought guns to show people in the model shop? I didn't know that. I have no idea that, I mean, I never saw that. Uh, but, uh, You know, he expected we had partners meetings in the morning, and he expected there would be nine or ten partners uh, having a meeting, which we did every morning. But uh, I stepped out for a phone call. Uh, If I didn't do that, I wouldn't be talking to you now. Mm -hmm. But my two partners were still in there, so the meeting broke up a little bit early. uh, And uh, I stepped out, and I heard the shots. Uh, When I went back in, I saw what he did. Uh, I saw my two partners killed. I didn't see him. So there was one door. I went out, uh, he went in, he went out, I went in. That's how close I came uh, to not being here. But you never quite get over it. I mean, when things like Highland Park happened, it just brings it all back again. It's something you have to live with. And and the people who suffer these things all the time, it's something that you'll live with all the rest of your life. Uh, One of our young designers, who was a cyclist and everything, uh, he was uh, his spine was severed with a bullet, and he worked for us 12 more years, every day in a wheelchair. So we never, never were escaping it. But we still had to run a business. Uh, we had a very vibrant business. We had 60 people at that time. We had, with family, we were supporting a couple hundred people. Uh, so we had to put the pieces together and go on. There was no no other choice.
0: Yeah, you were propelled in your 30s to an executive. Role? How, how do you lead out of out of grief?
1: Well, it it was you know so two of the partners, one that was killed was a managing partner, and the other one was another partner. We had other partners, and uh, basically, I was the youngest partner at the time. I was in 33 years old, and uh, one of the other more senior partners wanted to run it, and the other people didn't want him, so I got the job by default. I was the youngest. I was 33 years old. I I didn't want to. This wasn't my choice, but nobody else wanted it, and the one who wanted it, nobody wanted him. So it was quite. I, I had no choice but to do this, and it was uh, it was very challenging, needless to say.
0: Yeah, because it's I'm I'm no grief expert, nor am I an executive, but there's shock, and then there's kind of the long slog of. Grief, and you guys are in the joy making business. I know. I mean, our, our, our job was to create, balance that. I mean, our job was creating
1: fun for children.
0: I mean, that's what yeah. we did
1: every day. You know, so it was uh, it was very difficult to get things started. But I found somebody uh, that weekend. This happened on a Tuesday. We had funerals the rest of the week, and then we opened again on the following Monday. And I found somebody who came in uh, who had experience working with this type of group disaster. And, and what he said to, to me and then to the whole group is you have to talk about everything. You have to talk about where you were, why you didn't get killed. You stepped out. Somebody was in the bathroom. And if you don't talk about it over and over and over again, you, you're not going to be able to deal with it. That the, that the therapy is to talk about it. And I hear that just now with people in Highland Park. There was a woman on the radio I was listening to on the way right home, and she said the exact same thing, that in order to deal with this type of thing, you have to talk about it. If you don't want to talk about it, it's going to be much more difficult to go on with your life.
0: Great, and it sounds like you set up an, an environment in the office where people could do that. It was sort of ahead of its time. I think that's a valued part yeah. of most human human resources departments uh, today. But you, you sort of had to make that that decision. Well, we had
1: we were small enough that we had no human resource. We had just ourselves. I mean, there wasn't a, there wasn't and I was lucky to find this one individual through somebody who who helped us through. And he stayed a whole week uh, talking to people as groups, individuals. And and I think that was uh, the thing that helped save our business was that we talked it, talked it, talked it through and get beyond it. But, you know, happened a very long time ago.
0: Yeah. Understood. Well, from that moment on, you were in the industry for a long time. You were in a corporate culture for a long time. A lot changed over that time. You mentioned all these things in your great book. I picked, personally picked out a few that I wanted to dive into. Okay. A bit. Go ahead. One is, you said, constantly do the unexpected. What what do you mean by that? Well,
1: the, the huge successes in the toy business and, and other things are, are doing something that would never test well and that, was not expected, and I can give you a few examples of some of the biggest hits in the toy industry that if you tested it would have been awful. I mean, when Barbie came out in 1958, if you tested that doll with mothers, they would have said, absolutely, I would never buy that doll for my child, okay? When Cabbage Patch came out, the leading people in the doll industry uh, were ideal, Mattel, ugly doll, never sell, you know, and you can't make every doll different and impossible. So Coleco, who never made a doll before, Made cabbage patch, and as the rest they say is history. The people were waiting in line. You know, uh, one more example: Rubik's cube was ten dollars for a puzzle. Nobody paid ten dollars. A puzzle's two dollars. Way too expensive. Never sell, and you can't do it. And it went on to be one of the great toys in the world. So many more examples. So you have to come up with something that that sounds like it's never. You know, a pet rock. We didn't do, but who wants a pet rock? But that that was the nature of the business. And you have to be open to that. Now, again, most of the time you're gonna fail, but uh, some of the great successes are things that would never ever test well. We never, uh, very funny story about Marvin Glass. I mean, he didn't believe in testing and everything else. And we had a client that came in and from England, and he said, he said something to Marvin, do you ever test your toys with children? And and Marvin looked him in the eye and said, I haven't seen a kid in 20 years. That's what he said to him. (laughs) <laughs> Which was true. I mean, he, you know, he didn't need a kid to understand what made a good toy and what didn't make a good toy. You know, and and we didn't either. We were all a bunch of kids. Is, is how it worked. You know, if it entertained us and, and we were fond of it, then it ended up being a good toy. And I and I had wonderful partners. And and my partner Howard Morrison uh, was the best toy designer in the world. Okay, Howard could do games, toys, ride-ons, vehicles, plush there isn't anything he couldn't do. And he, he had a wonderful sense of humor. And, uh, you know, I focused on games. My other partner, Ruben Terzian, focused on dolls. But Howard could do anything. And and I think there was there was still a child in him that just never let go. I mean, he was just a wonderful, kind, dear man. And, uh, you know, he's not too well now. He's in his 90s. But he is uh, w- was something to have as a partner. Was, and I was lucky to have wonderful people to work with and wonderful, uh, employees. And Great. Yeah. That, that makes the whole difference in the world. And it was an open environment. And and part of that was everything was open to everybody else. Somebody's walking by and see you working on something. You don't hide it. And they say, Hey, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? So it was a collective, nothing we ever did was one person totally doing one product. It was always a group effort Now somebody had a spearheaded, but it did become, uh, groups, uh, which was the fun of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I have a question from from Douglas. And in a way we kind of just answered it, but that just tells me you're right on the mark with the book. Douglas wanted to know, what do you look for in order to win in business? Well, Jeffrey, I think you're saying lose a lot. That'll get you to the, to the win, right? Well, in
1: in in the creative business, yes. I mean, I wouldn't say that. You know, I mean, if you're a surgeon, you're a accountant, <laughs> you're a stockbroker, you, you can't get away with that. You know, you can't lose too often. But I'm saying, we felt we were in the entertainment business. Okay, we just did toys and games and dolls, but we were still in the entertainment business. And that whole business is built on failure. You know, lose, 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 and, and then you win some. I mean, uh movie studio makes 20 films if they if two or three are huge hits it pays for all the ones that go down the drain and same yeah. for tv same for theater you know yes
0: is so. it true that when you guys were shopping around ideas and clients would come in i mean sometimes maybe you just didn't hit hit it off even with a with a one of these big toy marketers retailers too that that you had a long history with it's there's just something about it so if you had fully developed ideas that you really believed in you you could potentially take them elsewhere and, and would have to right well,
1: at, at, at some point so we had a small handful of clients we maybe had 20 25 clients it was it wasn't a big and, and these were clients that needed new toys and games and dolls every year so there was sure. a big need and and they and they couldn't do it all themselves so we worked on products like Barbie, like Hot Wheels, where we didn't own the brand, but we were able to be successful in showing them something that they hadn't thought of. And, and they only worked for uh, with private individual designers like ourselves. If you came in off the street today, no company would talk to anybody. And, and it's partly because somebody has an idea, they think nobody's thought of this before, they show it to somebody, they come out with something similar, and there's all kinds of problems. So when we showed stuff to people, our clients, we showed it and said, well, we're working on something like that. Okay, next, you know, so we accepted the fact and we never lost a client. You know, I mean, the the nice thing about our business is we always had our clients. All we had to do is put something great on the table, which we could do. If you're in the advertising business, all of a sudden you have a big account. One day they say, well, we're going to try another company. Well, what were we doing right? Well, we're just making a change. We would never lose a client ever. We never had legal problems with our client. We never sued them. They never sued us. So it was a wonderful working relationship. Uh, But as long as we put something on the table that they like, they would come and see us uh, every week if they could.
0: The the business side of art, no doubt. Um, Angela, this question's kind of related to that. It's from Angela. She's listening. She wants to know if you can talk about the trade-offs that you faced in taking that leadership role at a relatively junior stage because then maybe you didn't get to do as much hands-on design work was was that a trade-off or how did that and and talk about that in career too. you get okay. sort of promoted out of what you love to do sometimes right
1: it, it wasn't a trade-off cuz i still continue to design toys and games well, okay our our business was a very easy business to run okay when when i say that we we never had a problem uh with people not paying us. All our clients paid us four times a year like clockwork. So we never had bad debt. There's very few companies that have no bad debt. So it was an easy business to run. Our clients came to see us. We didn't have to go out on the road traveling and everything else. Another thing that was very positive. So running the business was not a difficult thing. We didn't borrow money from the bank. We were able to finance the business ourselves. How many businesses could say that? So I never let go of designing. Okay. So that was the main thing that I did there, and running the business was was relatively easy. You, know, it, it do you just think wasn't. that
0: can happen happen today in create? Do you do you keep in touch with people in creative fields, and do you think that I, I
1: I still occasionally go back to Big Monster Toys? I've been gone from there fourteen years, and uh, and, and they're doing terrific. I mean, I, I'm most proud of the fact that I left the company, and the business is going on without me. I think that shows a sign of a good manager, a good leader, a good anything. I mean, Steve Jobs, when he died, people thought that was the end of the apple. And it wasn't because he he had good people. And And that's what I'm most proud of, that I had good people, good partners now that I made partners like Marvin made me a partner. And the business
0: is still continuing. Yeah. Speaking of people... Uh, women are people. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to pronounce and make yes. that declaration. Thank you. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> you felt the toy industry historically, the game industry was very slow in having women, maybe designers, certainly decision makers. Has that changed? And why was that so short sighted? It's it's toys. G- girls make up half or more of your market, right? So yes, absolutely.
1: Uh, it, it was, I wouldn't say it was short-sighted. It was just what it was at that time. I mean, when I was in school, there were only guys in industrial design. There were no women in the program, okay? And, and we found that the background of industrial design was the best background for what we we're looking for, okay? It was a combination of ideas, creativity, being able to build things, prototypes, And and when I was in school, most of the guys in the class wanted to go to Detroit and design automobiles. That's all they wanted to do. So it it came about slowly just by how things were. And I I thought when I took over, we needed to hire more and more women because half of our, you know, ultimate clients are little girls. But we had guys who knew dolls, who could design dolls and make dolls. And it just... Uh, but it it got better. Is it better today? I sure think so, without question. And and it happened within the industry. I mean, one of the smartest brightest people in the entire toy industry was a woman by the name of Jill Barad, who started out as a marketing person and ended up being chairman of the board of Mattel. And she took Barbie from, I don't know, three, 400 million to a billion and a half. I might be off on the numbers, but she was the smartest, best toy person that I ever knew in my life was Jill Barat, And she uh, was amazing and and hired an awful lot of women at that time uh, to work on Barbie, even though we're guys, we worked on Barbie as well. Good, because
0: I was going to say, I'm the mother of both a girl and boys. And we were, not even with all that much intention, just sort of naturally blurred the line between what boys should play with and what girls should play with. Our girl loved Lego as much as her brothers did and the boys had dolls. So I think having a diverse office can also think of the market in, in, in that way too. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Oh, I, without question. I mean, I, I I think it makes a huge difference, you know? It, it was just slow happening at the time, just by the nature of what it was. It's like saying, you know, how many women at that time became doctors or, you know, I, I mean, certain things, engineers, but it's changing quite a bit. And I think obviously for the better, but it was yeah. just that period of time and what it was. And uh, and I made a big effort when I started running the company to look for women designers. I recruited at the Fashion Institute. They actually right. had a two-year postgraduate program in toy design and Otis out in California had a four-year undergraduate program in toy design. And they had many, many women, uh, in those programs. There was not, when I was in school, there was not a a way you can get a degree in toy design or major in toy design. Today there is.
0: Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, what do you, what is the board games future in an, in in a electronic, a digital, world Um, there's nostalgia right but is there also just fresh ongoing interest for for board games
1: i think there is i think that it's going back to that uh quickly the the industry has changed tremendously since i started and and the three big changes first of all is the electronics that go into it and that we we lose our consumer at an earlier age we lose them to ipads to phones to video games to a lot of other things the second big change is the consolidation of the toy companies. Mattel and Hasbro bought up most of these toy companies. Uh, so they bought Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, and you can go down the list of companies that are now owned by these conglomerate big. So that reduced uh, the number of clients we had. And then, so that's a big change. And the third big change is the retail. I mean, the biggest toy company in the world is Amazon. You can't walk in the stores, walk up and down the aisle and look at toys and pick out toys. And uh, that's that I miss. I mean, the idea that in, when Toys R Us was there, uh, you know, if somebody had a tough time and, and I said, take the afternoon off, spend it all in Toys R Us, walk up and down the aisles, look at things. You, you can't do that anymore. It's not yeah. the same. So those are the three big changes for the toy industry. But to answer your question, I think the board games are coming back. I think people are want to play with other people, not just stand in front of a screen and play a game. And uh, I see my grandson playing a game with somebody he doesn't even know, you know, somewhere else. The fun of sitting around with people is never going to go away. It, okay. And it may ebb and flow, but I think they're a good board game will always entertain people. Uh, and it's fun to sit down, you know, no different than playing other games like bridge and poker, and yeah. you, it, it really is not quite the same as playing online.
0: Yeah, I'm a big cribbage player with my parents, and I really relish the, <laughs> those
1: times. It, it, it's fun. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's fun to interact with you. It's not fun sitting in front of a screen playing a game. I mean, I, you get something out of it, but not the same as is with friends and
0: family at all. Yeah. Well, Les wrote in, he wants to know, where do you get your, where did you get your ideas? Where does the industry, do you think, get their ideas for a new game? What's sort of that fountain, you know, that well that you'd go to and and dip again and again?
1: I I mean, and I said this in in the book, sometimes I took up sayings, you know, ants in the pants was a saying. I made a game that fit that. Bucket of fun was the same thing. Other things... Uh, you know, hands down, you know, so, so that was one source, but, but the biggest source to me at the time was, was walking up and down the shelves, going to trade shows and seeing all the stuff and tremendous inspiration. And you say, why didn't I think of that one? Okay. Why didn't I, and, and an idea, uh, is a combination of, of the idea and execution. Okay. And it's a, a balance between the two. Some ideas are very pure hula hoop. The person who had the idea, anybody could have made it. It could have been a little bigger, a little smaller, but there was no real execution in it. The other example I use is rock'em sock'em robots. You can say, okay, let's have two robots and they stand in a ring and punch each other and one head pops up. That idea is not worth much unless you can actually make that thing okay, and make it work. So that's an extreme idea where it's not a very good idea. It's all about execution. But nice. most of them fall somewhere in between a good idea and a good
0: execution. That's great. You um, we have another uh, listener that wanted to know because um, you had such a long working life and you have a, a great retirement afterwards. And we'll get into that. But the question is, any advice for those who want to make a career change mid mid career, like a pretty big, you know. Well, and,
1: and become a toy or game designer.
0: Maybe, or, or maybe just when you're, when you've been in an industry for so long, can um, you ever do anything else if you, if you so choose? Gosh, I, I, I hope so.
1: I mean, I, I think that you always got to be looking for something else. I mean, as much as you're satisfied with what you're doing, there's so much else out there, you know, and, and if it's, you know, I, I, I was lucky that I had a job for 41 years that I love doing every single day. I mean, you know, I, I look forward to going to work. It was fun to work. I mean. And, and I didn't know too many people that did that. I mean, I had a dear friend who, you know, because of family problems, had to get into a business that, you know, was not that kind of business. It was business. If, if you're working hard, assuming you're not doing manual labor, hard work is problems, you know. Every day it's a problem. The, you know, the trucks breaking down, nobody's showing up for work. You're, you're filled with problems, you know. And, and so I had a business that, that wasn't like that. So I was very fortunate, very lucky. That I, and and I think everybody's good at doing something. Maybe they're doing something that they're not happy with, you know, it's, they're making money, but, uh, success. Okay. And I didn't come up with this, but I read success. You get up in the morning and you go to bed at night and in between you do something you love, you're successful. Okay. There are a lot of people who make an awful lot of money that aren't happy, but they have a lot of money, but, but, but success is that, that was it for me, you know?
0: Yeah i I was gonna say post office. You're a sculptor with um with your pieces on exhibit in several places in in the country. You travel the world. What is it that you think is key to a re- rewarding life? Perhaps when you had a corporate identity and that corporate identity goes away, how do you have a fulfilling retirement when you well, you know I, you make I, sort of you separation? Keep, you keep saying retired.
1: I never retired. Okay. I don't know like okay. I just did something different. Okay. I knew there was a certain point in my life and we structured the company so that it would go on. And myself and my partner said, okay, when you hit 65, you know, we'll figure out a good buyout and everything else for the company, for the individual. And that's what we did. So I knew at 65, I was not going to be done signing toys anymore, but I did it for 41 years. And I started sculpting Uh, weekends, evenings, and I knew that's what I wanted to do when I left the toy business, you know. And I've been lucky enough to have a lot of pieces that are out there. Could I make a living just on my sculpture today? Probably not, but I I work every day. I mean, I have a studio, and and, uh, I was there this morning. I mean, I was there yesterday, you Mm -hmm. know. So when I'm in town, I'm at my studio seven days a week. And, and, I, and I work by myself. I have a, a helper on the weekends. If I need something uh, that takes four hands to do, I don't try and do anything stupid. But I, uh, my sculpting t- career has transitioned. I used to do realistic bronze figures. I had success with that. I'm doing uh, things with stone and steel and boulders. Uh, I do aluminum kids, silhouettes of kids. Yes. So it's, it's very uh, varied, which I really enjoy.
0: That does varied, very varied, sounds like the key to re- to non-retirement, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so think- I think so.
1: I mean, I, you know, I have a friend who's a, an artist and a painter and he was an architect and he built all these buildings and did a lot of stuff. And now he, he's a very successful painter and he and he teaches painting. And so I, I think there's something about reinventing yourself and, and something that I remember that stuck in my mind uh, was, uh, Paul Bear Bryant was a coach of yeah. University coach. of Alabama yeah. a long, long time yeah. ago. And I had yeah. a friend who talked down there and he mm-hmm. said the football coach ran the university, Bear, you know, Bear Bryant. And when he left, retired, it was 1973. He played University of Illinois. They beat us and publicly said, I have nothing left to live for. And he mm. died within a month. Mm. Okay? And I, wow. I mean, that was so profound for me. I remembered it. I I just remembered him saying that And a month later, the guy was dead. I think you have to have something to look forward to, to get up in the morning. I mean, I think that's the key to uh, a long life, a healthy life. I think you also have to take care of yourself. You know, I mean, I work out, I box, I do Pilates, I hike. I think that's a huge part of of
0: my life as well. Yeah. Excellent. Rock'em Sock'em as fitness inspiration. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, thanks. Thanks, Jeffrey. I I wanted to say thanks. You've been super generous with your time. I learned a lot. Thank you very Um, much. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you you for having me. It was fun to to chat with you. Good,
0: good. Well, I just wanted to tell everybody, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow on Crypto Winter. Financial news speaks to Gwendolyn uh, Regina, investment director at the world's largest crypto exchange, Binance, and Ari Redboard, head of legal and government affairs at blockchain intelligence group, TRM Labs. They'll be interviewed. We're going to learn what's next in that world and how to navigate the increasingly stormy crypto landscape. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.